Savior, I come, quiet my soul, remember, redemption's here, where your blood was spilled, on my ransom, everything I want to that's our heart tonight, that God would lead us to the cross in a deeper, more profound way than we have ever experienced before. 
I want to welcome you to our Good Friday service. I'm David Holt, one of the pastors. I want to encourage you to silence your phones, please. We do have child care provided for up to fifth grade, and we will dismiss the children about 10 or 15 minutes from now, right before we have the reading of the medical description of the crucifixion. Tonight's theme comes from Hebrews 12, which says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy that could be set before Jesus and cause him to endure such immense suffering? Well, you're going to get an answer to that tonight. And one of the things that I want to bring to your attention is that the slideshow to my right is something that you will want to occasionally glance toward because that will actually help reveal the answer to that question tonight. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you, the sovereign creator of the universe, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-caring, all-loving, all-holy, so loved the world, every person in it who has ever existed or will exist, that you sent your only son, you literally became a human being in Jesus, the second person of the Godhead and you came to earth and you lived and you died and you suffered and you bled for us. It was our sin that put you there. We praise you God that you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We also praise you Lord God that you exist in the third person of the Godhead the Holy Spirit and so we ask and invite and welcome the full presence of the Holy Spirit tonight to stir our hearts, to grant salvation to any who are not saved, to bring healing to any who need that, to bring deepening and maturity and sanctification to all your people. For your glory tonight, we invite you, we welcome you, and we desire that tonight you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want you to step back to 1000 BC when King David penned these words in Psalms 22. And these you'll re you will remember and you'll, you'll become familiar to you that this is actually the passage that Jesus quoted on the cross. So we go back to Psalm 22. Keep in mind, 1000 years before Christ was even born, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And let me remind us, this was written before crucifixion had even become a form of punishment. They divide my garments, and for my clothing they cast lots. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. There gives us just a glimpse at what the joy that was set before him. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. 
700 B.C. is when Isaiah 53 was written. And it reads that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, that's the Father God, has laid on him, that's the Son of God, the iniquity of us all. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Please stand with me as we sing. breath 
Hello, my name is Dr. Rich Saplita. I have a PhD from the University of Georgia in psychology, and when I was in graduate school, I specialized in neuroscience, and specifically, my research I did for my master's and PhD was uh, the physiology of pain. And so, we wanna take a few minutes tonight and read a description that was written by a medical doctor, not me, um, but a medical doctor, on the physical suffering of Jesus, just to give you some idea of what that was like. And so the question, why such suffering? Well, I think it's clear from Scripture that Jesus had to suffer so immensely because God takes sin that seriously. Human sin is that serious to God. God is that good, he is that righteous, he is that just. And to give us an idea of just how heinous our sin is to a holy God, Jesus suffered such agony upon the cross. So let's take a deeper look at that. We begin in the Garden of Gethsemane. Interestingly enough, the physician, St. Luke, says in Luke twenty-two forty-four, and being, being in agony... Jesus prayed, and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Though very rare, the phenomenon known as hematohydrosis, or bloody sweat, is well documented. Under great emotional stress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat. As a result of hemorrhage into the sweat glands, the skin becomes fragile and tender. So as we proceed through the other aspects of Jesus' physical suffering, keep in mind the intense stress on his body at this point. Soon after midnight, Jesus was arrested in the garden and taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas, the high priest.
priest. Here, the first physical trauma was inflicted. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him, mockingly taunted him to identify them as uh, each passed by, spat on him, and struck him in the face. Very early in the morning, Jesus was then tried before the religious Sanhedrin and was found guilty of blasphemy, a crime punishable by death. Since permission for an execution had come, had to come from the Romans, Jesus was then taken to Pilate, who found nothing in him guilty of death. So then he was taken to Herod, the king of the Jews, and then back to Pilate, where he gave in to the demand of the crowd to release Barabbas, and thus condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Scourging at the hands of the Romans was a most vicious form of punishment. The prisoner was first stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head, as you can see in the graphic there. The Roman legionnaire stepped forward with a flagrum or a flagellum in his hand. This was a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. Some also contained sharp animal bones tied at intervals. The heavy whip was brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, his back, and his legs. So we have a picture of a person being flogged. At first, the lead balls and animal bones cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead produced large, deep bruises that were broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back was hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area was an unrecognizable mass of torn and bleeding tissue. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock when it was determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner was near death the beating was finally stopped. It is not known in Jesus' case whether the number of lashes was limited to 39 in accordance with Jewish law. The Roman soldiers amused that this weakened Jesus had claimed to be a king began to mock him by placing a robe on his shoulders, a crown of thorns on his head, and a wooden staff as a scepter in his right hand. The crown of thorns was pressed into his scalp, and again there was copious bleeding as the thorns pierced the very vascular tissue. There's an image of the crown of thorns. Next, they spat on Jesus and struck him on the head with, a, with the wooden staff. Moreover, when the soldiers tore the robe from Jesus' back, they probably reopened the scourging wounds. 
So with Jesus' condition of bloody sweat in the garden, rendering his skin already tender, coupled with all that came with the scourging and intense blood loss, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition at this point was very serious and likely critical. After the scourging, it was customary for the condemned man to carry the crossbar upon which he would be nailed. This usually weighed about 100 pounds. It was placed across the victim's neck and tied along both shoulders. In spite of Jesus' effort to walk with the crossbar, the weight of the heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by blood loss was too much, so he stumbled and fell, and another man was found who could carry the cross beam for him. Jesus then struggled to make the 650-yard journey up the hill upon which he would be crucified. Upon reaching the place of crucifixion, the prisoner was again stripped of his clothing except for a loincloth, which was allowed in the case of Jewish criminals. Now the actual crucifixion begins. At the site of the execution by law, the victim was offered a bitter drink of wine mixed with myrrh as a mild analgesic. Jesus refused the drink. Jesus was then thrown to the ground on his back with his arms outstretched along the crossbeam. At this point, his hands were nailed to the wood with five to seven inch spikes This would be done through the wrists in order to hold the person more firmly on the cross. As the victim was nailed in both wrists to the cross, they would be sure to pull the arms, to not pull the arms too tightly, thus allowing for some flexion and movement, so that the victim would die slowly on the cross by painfully pulling himself up to breathe. The left foot of the victim was pressed against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail was driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim was now crucified. When the nailing was complete, the crossbar was attached to the upright portion of the cross, then it was raised and forcefully lowered into a hole in the ground. At this point, pain would again rivet through Jesus' entire body. As Jesus slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shot along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. In fact, the word excruciating comes from crucifixion. The nails in the wrist were putting pressure on the median nerve, large nerve trunks which traverse the mid-wrist and hand. As he, was pu- as he pushed himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he placed his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there was searing agony as the nail tore through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. As the arms fatigued, Great waves of cramps swept over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, 
throbbing pain. With these cramps came the inability to push himself upward, hanging by the arm, the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the chest were paralyzed and the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs, were unable to act. While on the cross, air would be drawn into the lungs but could not be exhaled. Jesus fought to raise himself in order to even get one short breath. It was during these periods that Jesus uttered the seven short sentences that are recorded. The first, looking down at the Roman soldiers, throwing dice for his seamless garment. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The second, to the penitent thief next to him, he says, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The third, looking down to Mary, his mother, he said, Woman, Behold your son, and then turning to the terrified, grief-stricken, adolescent John, the beloved apostle, Jesus says, Behold your mother. The fourth cry is from the beginning of Psalm 22. We just looked at it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., He suffered hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, and searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back, from his movement up and down against the rough timbers of the cross. Then another agony began, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart, slowly filled with serum and began to compress the heart. The prophecy in Psalm twenty-two fourteen was being fulfilled. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. The end was rapidly approaching. The loss of tissue fluids had reached a critical level. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick blood to the tissues, and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulps of air. The dehydrated tissues sent their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasped his fifth cry, I thirst. A sponge soaked in Pasca, the cheap sour wine, that was the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, was lifted to Jesus' lips. His body now in extremis, and he could feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This realization brought forth his sixth word, possibly little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. To tell us, His mission of atonement had been completed Our sins were paid in full. Finally, with one last surge of strength, Jesus again pressed his torn feet against the nail, straightened his legs, took a deeper breath, and uttered his seventh and last cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last.
did my Savior bleed for me, my curse and shame to crush. Hanging there in agony, he bore the weight of my guilt. In Christ alone my hope is found, and only by his blood I'm reconciled. work I'm resting in his finished work I'm resting what joy is found at Jesus feet to him my soul entrusted how wonderful to find relief unburdened by ambition my strength and feet from me will plead my heart in him encouraged my eyes affixed to Calvary's tree my sin forever vanquished in Christ alone my hope is found by his blood I'm reconciled the victory is mine in him and in his finished work I'm resting in his finished work I'm So our theme tonight for the joy set before him comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. In that verse, it mentions that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. The word translated before him or set before him comes from the Greek word which literally means something that is out in front of another person. 
It's something that you see ahead of you. It was often used of a runner, and that's the context of Hebrews 12, run the race with endurance. It was used of a runner that, despite being tired and worn out and in pain, saw something ahead of him, maybe the finish line. And that was that which gave the runner the confidence, the encouragement, even in this case, the joy to keep going. So, it begs the question, and I I would have never imagined that Jesus could have had some kind of inner joy amidst all of the suffering He went through if it were not for this verse. When we have just heard the incredible description of just a glimpse into the pain, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and in every other way that Jesus went through for you and me, how in the world could, in the midst of that, there be some kind of joy? What is that joy that was set before Him? That was in His spiritual view? Well, I believe the answer to that is found in Isaiah 53. Again, the prophetic passage about Jesus. It says it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. That means it was the Father's will to do this. There's another passage that says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth. In other words, in the sovereign, divine, loving plan of God, He knew even before He created anything else that His Son would come and do this. So it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. And he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then look at this phrase. He shall see his offspring. Isaiah 53 gives the answer to that question. What Jesus saw when he was on the cross that gave him an inner sense of joy despite the physical suffering was his offspring. You. Me. His bride, His church, His redeemed ones. He saw in His agony what His agony would accomplish. And that gave Him joy. That was the joy set before Him. You and me and every person that embraces Christ as Savior and Lord. Every person that by faith puts their trust in Christ alone and receives the forgiveness of their sins and is born again and becomes His offspring. If you're saved tonight, you're His offspring. You were the joy set before Him that helped Him endure the cross and despise all the shame that came with His suffering. Now there's one more little piece of truth here that has incredible relevance. Let's go back to Hebrews 12, but look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's a reference to Hebrews 11. The hall of faith. The, the people, the men and women that Hebrews 11 speaks of who lived by faith. And if you read that chapter, what did they go through? Lots of suffering. The way those people are spoken of in Hebrews 11 deals with the difficulty, the pain, the suffering, the persecution that they went through. So we're surrounded in this arena of life, so to speak. Getting encouragement as we run this race, we get encouragement by those who've gone before us. 
So let us lay aside every weight, anything that would hold us back in our walk with God, anything that would keep us from loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, let's lay it aside. And the sin that so easily entangles us or clings so closely to us. So it's not just laying aside sin. We know where to do that. But anything that would weigh us down, let's lay that off. Let's put that aside. And then, what does it say? Let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Same Greek word used in verse 2 about Jesus. It's the exact same word. So the joy set before Jesus, which was you and me, which helped Him endure the cross. What do we have set before us that helps us endure difficulty and suffering? Jesus. We learn from His example. We take heart that even our suffering can produce positive things, just as His suffering produced redemption and salvation and the purchase of His bride. Our suffering, our difficulties, our hardships can produce greater Christ-likeness, greater depths with God, greater ability to minister to others because we've been through hardship. And we take heart by looking at the Hebrews 11 men and women who have done this very thing. And so, as we set Jesus before us and His example, we, like Him, can even have joy in the midst of our pain and our suffering. And so let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Because He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And now I want you to hear from two people that have experienced a living personal relationship with Jesus even amidst difficulty in their life. They've seen God produce some amazing things and even have joy. I was saved at 10 years of age at a summer church camp. I can still remember sitting on the pew with about 50 other children. I can see the youth pastor down there, and I can see the lake behind him. I would walk down and give my life to Jesus Christ. Such an unbelievable concept that I could be the joy set before him. I was raised in a broken home with a good stepfather. My mother made sure that we were at church every time the doors were open. I married a girl I dated in high school. We built a home. We had a child that was born with a heart defect. She would die at three months' age, and my marriage would die with her. In order to bring a little normalcy back to life, we had a second child. We still ended in divorce. So I'd lost my home, my child, my marriage, lost a business in that, and I lost my place in life. I was angry at God, and I told him so. I know now that this letdown by God was actually an excuse to let me pursue worldly things and sinful things. I was a workaholic, a womanizer, and I drank too much. I would commit many sins in this season of my life that there was no way that I could ever go back and save them. It took much blood to repair the damage that I had done in that season. It took Jesus' blood. Even when I was running in the other direction, God was still pursuing me. There were many times that I cried out, and as undeserving as I was, He was there for me, always ready to comfort me. I met a girl who I pursued intently 
I knew that in order to have a lasting marriage, we needed to have God in the midst of our relationship. So I went back to church and she went with me. It was a season of heavy days of repentance and correction. But even though God was restoring me, he was also tearing me down to build me in his own image. Although he set me free from millions in debt, I had to lose assets, value, and selfish pride. I had to be humbled. There were nights that I could not even breathe without his comfort. I'd find myself alone in the dark, oftentimes outside in the yard, just trying to catch my breath. But my childhood commitment had secured a place with the Savior. He restored me as he enabled me to persevere. And today I have a wonderful, loving, and supportive wife, three amazingly strong and confident children, three grandchildren, more than I deserve. I still have temptations and struggles, but as I resist the devil, he flees, and as I fix my eyes on Jesus, he provides his peace and his joy. I still go through the valleys, but with God beside me, I realize that they are very temporal and they're just shadows of the valley. I'm very thankful for a Savior who died for me, I'm very thankful for a God who pursued me, but I'm most thankful that I am the joy that was set before him. I was saved as a child, but there was so much I didn't know at that point. And as a teenager... There were some years that I went away from the Lord because the relationship that I had with the Lord was more about my behavior and just knowing about Him than actually being in a relationship with Him. But God wasn't going to leave me there. He wasn't going to just leave me with the initial step of salvation and a head knowledge of who He was. He set me on a journey of sanctification that, begin, that continues even to this day. Why? Because I and every other believer was the joy that was set before him as he hung on the cross. He saw me and he saw each one of us complete in him, living in the full destiny that he created each one of us for. The price that he paid on the cross for me was so much more than just to prepackage me for heaven. It was to give me an abundant life of victory now. His blood opened, as it were, a spiritual bank account for me with the bank of heaven. I didn't understand it fully at the time, but I was already redeemed, forgiven, set free, made whole, made holy, made righteous, and set apart in Him and so much more. And He wanted me to know it and to access it. However, before I really understood what was mine through the blood, my world seemed to turn upside down. My life was turned upside down, and I was broken in so many ways. And I experienced the brokenness of loving someone who was deeply bound in addiction and the life-altering consequences that came to both of us because of the addiction 
and the codependency. My heart had gotten to a place where it never stopped crying on the inside. And I was broken and pressed down, and I had no joy. But God was working through that pain and through the hard places. He was working for my good and for His glory. He brought me here to Living Hope, and He opened to me a deeper relationship, a living relationship with my Savior that included the fullness of His Holy Spirit, something that I'd never had before. And now, because of that living relationship in Jesus, I have a joy set before me, no matter how hard life gets. My husband, the one that I love, has not yet come to freedom in Christ. And the pain still exists for our family. But my joy is not based on my circumstances. My joy is in the Lord and in all that His blood has bought for me on the cross. And the joy and the comfort that I have are now the comfort that I have to offer to others. God used the crushing pain that our family has experienced to give me a heart for Him, a heart for others, and a heart for intercessory prayer. So no matter how dark circumstances look, as long as there is breath, there is hope. There is hope because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, and because of the blood of Jesus. Today, my identity is sure. My destiny is secure. My enemies are not flesh and blood, and my weapons are not carnal. I have traded brokenness for wholeness and weeping for joy. And no matter what continues to come my way, I know whom I have believed in. And I know that I overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony. And my testimony is this, that I am redeemed by the blood. And I know what is mine now in the finished work of the cross, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And today, because of the blood of Jesus, I have hope to offer to others that live in seemingly hopeless situations. You can take it. Well, now we get to feast. Now we get to feast. John 6 and 53, Jesus said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And after that, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. How is it going to change now? The old covenant granted forgiveness of sins to an extent, but the new covenant. Hebrews says it's a better covenant. Because it cleanses us at, at, at the deepest level possible. It cleanses our conscience. And God comes to live inside of us. He says you get a new heart and a new spirit when you receive Christ. And it's an everlasting covenant that can't be broken. And just as we eat the bread and drink the juice, we take it into our bodies. In the same way, our salvation is Christ dwelling in us. The Holy Spirit empowering us and transforming us from the inside out. And the Bible says that you are to come with joy. You're to come with a prepared heart saying, God, I trust you. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that I was the joy 
that was set before you. And now as I partake, I partake in humility, but I partake in joy, and I partake in gratitude, and I partake in surrender. Surrender, God, because you gave your all for me. How could I do less than give my all to you? Why would I withhold anything from you? So God, have me, take me, and let this be a time of feasting, of joy and surrender and worship before God. And so when your heart is ready, you come to the table, you partake, knowing that the body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Those watching online, get some juice and bread and partake. Let this be a time of worship and surrender. The altar's open to kneel. Partake as families or individuals, however you want. You come when you're ready. And let's worship our great Jesus. When I survey the See from 
to partake of the, the bread and the cup. I want to share this with you. It's just uh, so amazing, the love of Christ that we've seen um, in his work on the cross. In John chapter 15, verse 9, these are the words of our Savior. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my commandments, kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. I'm not sure where you are on the journey tonight, to being a friend of Christ. If you haven't yet trusted Christ, tonight is the night to do that. And if you have, and you need endurance, we need endurance with joy, we find it by abiding in Christ, abiding in his love. And uh, so if you want to stand with me tonight, we'll sing these songs. If you need to come down and pray or if you uh, need prayer, uh, you can find someone on the side. When peace like a river attended my way when sorrows like sea billows roll Assurance control. 
its root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave is he worthy is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory is he worthy of he Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And is Jesus our Messiah? Hold forever those He loves. He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He church. He's worthy of our total, complete allegiance and surrender and worship and dedication and even suffering if it would lead to that. What a joy it's been tonight. Men, the wholehearted